0: I invite you to take your Bible with me today and turn to the book of Nehemiah chapter 3. Nehemiah chapter 3. We begin a series today entitled Difference Makers. Serve God, serve others. Serve God, serve others. And I want us to pray as we begin. Father, we do pray now that you will stir our hearts. We make ourselves available to you first. But Lord, we pray that the Lord of the harvest would send forth laborers into the harvest. The task is great. Lord, it's enormous. It's incredible. Lord, you didn't leave us that task to be done on our own. You have promised to give us all that we need, the help, the empowerment, the enablement, to be able to accomplish that task. And I pray, Lord God, that today you will speak to our hearts and that you might begin the work in each of us and that we might see you send forth those laborers. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Have you ever had a situation or a responsibility that was given to you, and when you looked at it and you thought about it and you pondered it, it just seemed to be something that was impossible for you to accomplish? It was too great. It was too big. It was too enormous. It was too difficult. It was too hard. And and you looked at it and you just felt overwhelmed because of what you've been asked to do. It was sort of like standing at your own personal Mount Everest In being told you've got to climb to the top, and you're looking at all of those feet of elevation and all of the work to get to the top, and you wonder, can I ever arrive at the top? It's just too difficult. It's just too hard. I'm reminded of a man in the northeast. They had been hit with uh, incredible snow, several feet of snow, and he went out to look after the snow had stopped, and His driveway was piled up several feet deep. His walkways were piled up several feet deep. And he was going out for the purpose of removing the snow so that he could get out and he could get back to life. But when he walked out and he saw how much there was, he sort of discouraged, went back inside and sat down and he thought about it for a little while. And after a little while, he came back out and he took his snow shovel and he marked off a little square, a little square area. Just pushed the shovel down in the snow and he removed that bit of snow. Then he marked another area and he removed that bit of snow. And then he marked off another bit of area and he removed that bit of snow. And he went in after a few minutes and he rested a little bit. And then he came back and marked off another square area and he removed that snow. And before he knew it, little by little, he had removed all of the snow from his driveways and his walkways. You know, sometimes when you're facing something that seems insurmountable, that seems like a personal Mount Everest, that is just too big and too hard, sometimes you just have to break it down into smaller pieces. You have to break it down into little sections to seek to accomplish it. I'm reminded of the person who said, How do you eat an elephant? And the response was, One bite at a time. Right? one bite at a time. You have to come back and take one bite at a time. And there are things in life sometimes that feel that way. Can I tell you that when I look around me and I see the brokenness in our society, it seems like a Mount Everest to me. It seems like something that's insurmountable. It seems like something that is too hard and too difficult. It seems like something that we'll never be able to accomplish. Why even begin to try to accomplish This morning, there are children who are waking up in houses. Their parents don't care whether they wake up and they're fed or not. Their parents aren't going to care what they do through the course of the day. Most of what they're going to be doing is going to be things that are done because they're watching television or because they're playing uh, electronic games or because they're being raised by the community rather than by their parents, they don't have anybody to tell them that they're loved, they don't have anybody to give them a hug, and they know that it's sincere and meaningful. They don't have anybody that seems to really care about their lives, and that brokenness just multiplies as they get older and they pass through the years of life. I'm thinking today of a young woman that Mary and I met a couple of weeks ago. She was working hard. We were impressed. She looked like she was 23 or four, maybe 25 years of age. And she was working hard. I mean, she was really going at it. And we were so impressed that we said to her, you know, you are really working hard. We're so proud of you. I'm telling you, you really demonstrated a wonderful work ethic. And that opened up a conversation that we were able to have with this young lady. And we learned that she was 19 years old of age. She's working two jobs. She has four siblings that she herself is trying to keep together because her mother is a drug addict. And this 19-year-old girl is working two jobs and doing them with all of her energy. And you could tell there was a maturity about her at 19 that you don't often see with 19-year-olds. But here it was, She was doing what she had to do and what she needed to do. And I see that brokenness. I see the brokenness of people that are in assisted living facilities and people that are at home today. They haven't gotten out in weeks or months. Many of them haven't had a phone call. Obviously, during the 2020 pandemic, we hadn't been able to visit them. We weren't able to visit them. But they haven't had a phone call. They haven't had a visit They haven't had a family member to check on them. They haven't had anybody that cared enough to show up and show them a little bit of love, give them a little bit of attention, let them know that they matter in life, that their life matters to somebody. And they're in those facilities. And we walk through those facilities and we see people that don't see anyone other than the nurses or other than the staff that's busy at work And sometimes you look at it and you think to yourself, this is simply insurmountable. There is so much that needs to be done. Or you think about young women that are being sold into sex slavery, sometimes by their own parents. And they're being trafficked all throughout the community and all throughout the nation and sometimes even beyond this nation and they're being trafficked by people who are making money off of these young women selling them into that kind of slavery and you look at it and you see the brokenness there's people living under bridges there's people who don't have the clothes to be able to cover themselves when it's cold there are people that are dealing with with various mental challenges And they don't have the help that's necessary to deal with those mental challenges. Some don't know where their next meal is coming from or how they're going to eat tomorrow or the day after tomorrow. They don't have an income. Some are working, and they're working as hard as they can, but they can barely make a living with the work that they're doing. And on and on the list goes. Some today are dealing with the loss of a loved one, the death of a husband or a wife, a son or a daughter. And unless you've walked that path, you don't know the depth of the pain and the sorrow that they feel. Thankfully, some of them have the hope of Jesus and they have the hope of meeting again, but there are literally millions of them that have absolutely no hope whatsoever, none at all. And you begin looking at all of this brokenness. And I've only mentioned a few areas of the brokenness. You begin looking at the brokenness that's all around us in our society. And it seems like a Mount Everest. In 2020, this staff was over-criticized and under-supported. While we took care of saving our own lives Sometimes we forgot that there were other people who were desperately in need of the touch of the Almighty God. And you expected us to walk into that, but we often walked into it alone. And it seems like an insurmountable amount of brokenness that's in desperate need of the touch of the love of Jesus Christ. Some of it is worked out right here on the campus of this church, but a lot of it is worked out in other places way away from this campus. Reaching out with the love of Jesus and saying, Lord, I'm available to stop thinking so much about ourselves and to stop and realize that all around us there are people who are hurting. Jesus looked out at the crowds and Jesus had compassion on them. We put them in the political boxes. We look at the immigrants coming across the border, and we have a political opinion, but every one of those represents a life that Jesus loves, no matter what your political perspective is about it. Every one of them is a life that Jesus loves. Every one of them deserves to hear of the saving grace of Christ. Every one of them needs to have the hope of an eternity with God in heaven. Every one of them matters to God. But we partition them off. And we take our political perspectives and we forget who we are. We are believers In the Lord Jesus Christ, we are the church of God in this world. We are his ambassadors and his representatives. We have been sent on a mission, and that mission is to reach those that are broken with the love of Jesus. This world will never be completely right as long as it's a sin-cursed world. But there's coming a day when he's going to come and call his children out of this world and ultimately make it like it's supposed to be. But until that day, we have a task that we've got to get to, we've got to work on, we've got to give ourselves to every single day of our lives. While we're chasing around all of our recreation, there are people that are dying right before us and all around us that don't have the love of Jesus Christ. They don't have anybody that even cares Most of us haven't mentioned the name of Jesus to a neighbor in 12 months or more. I believe God wants us to be difference makers. I believe God wants every life to matter. I believe God wants us to serve Him by serving others. We always talk about love God and love others. Do you know what that means? Love God and love others. We love the little cliche that's taken out of the two commandments that are summarizing all of the Old Testament law. But do you know what it means to love God and love others? It means to serve God and to serve others. That's what it means. It means to take the towel and put it on your arm and pour the water in the basin and get down and wash the feet Of those who need to be served. I want to take you to an unusual place as we begin this series Nehemiah chapter 3. Nehemiah chapter 3. Let me quickly tell you this story. Nehemiah is working in the kingdom of Persia. Persia has conquered Babylon, Babylon conquered Jerusalem. When Jerusalem was conquered, the Babylonians Either knocked holes in the wall, burned the gates of the wall, burned parts of the wall, or just simply knocked the wall of Jerusalem down. After 70 years, as God said there would be, he allowed the children of Israel who were taken away to Babylon into captivity, he allowed them to begin coming back to the promised land. And they come back in waves. They don't all come back at once. They come back in waves. And the number of people in Jerusalem is growing They rebuild the temple. That's the story of Ezra, the book prior to this one. They rebuild the temple. But the walls of the city haven't yet been rebuilt. You might not think walls are all that important, but walls at this point in history were absolutely essential. They were a part of defining a city, where the boundaries of that city lay. It was a matter of control, who came in and out of that city. You had to go through the gates. It was a means of protection. That wall provided a measure of protection against the enemies that would attack and try to destroy them. So that wall was absolutely essential. And 95 years, get the number, 95 years after Cyrus has said to the children of Israel, they can go back, they can go back to their land While the temple has been rebuilt, the walls of the city have not yet been rebuilt. Word comes to this man, Nehemiah, and Nehemiah is absolutely broken. And the reason he's concerned is because of the glory of God. This is the city of God. The glory of God is at stake here. The walls haven't haven't been rebuilt The city hasn't been reconstituted. The protections haven't been provided yet. The control that the city needs isn't there yet. Nehemiah hears that word and he's absolutely broken. Chapter 1, he prays an incredible prayer of repentance. Oh God, it can't be this way. It can't continue this way. It's got to change. Oh God. Well, Nehemiah is a cupbearer in King Artaxerxes' Kingdom. Persia conquers Babylon. Cyrus makes the decree for them to go back, but 95 years later, now we have King Artaxerxes, the Persian king. And Nehemiah is his cupbearer. He comes into the presence of Arta- King Artaxerxes one day and he looks sad. He's never looked sad before in the king's presence. And he says, the king says to him, Why are you sad? What's what's wrong? There's something obviously that's changed. And Ultimately, Nehemiah tells him the story about his city, his hometown, the city of Jerusalem. King Artaxerxes says, "I want you to go back, and I want you to rebuild that city." He gets letters so that he can get materials that he'll need. He can get passageway through various areas so that he can get back to where he wants to be, where he needs to be. When he arrives, Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem. He's there for three days and one night. Nehemiah makes a journey around this two or two-and-a-half-mile former wall that's now laying flat or has huge holes in it, no gates on it. He makes this journey around this wall, and his heart is broken by what he sees. He sees the brokenness of this city of God, and he knows something has to be done. In verse 17 of chapter 2, it says, Then I said to them, that's to these leaders in Jerusalem, these Jews that are there, You see the distress that we're in, how Jerusalem lies waste, and its gates are burned with fire. Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them the hand of my God, which had been good upon me. And so they said, let us rise up and build. And that brings you to chapter 3. They're ready to build. It's an incredible story. I bet you you've never heard a sermon from Nehemiah chapter 3. Because what the chapter is about are all of the names, if you will, this is Nehemiah giving credit to the people who worked on the wall to get the wall rebuilt and to get the gates reestablished. This is Nehemiah saying, these people are the ones who did it. He didn't take the credit, though the burden was his, the vision was his, the desire was his. He motivated, through God, through him, motivated these people to be involved in the rebuilding of this wall. And he begins to list their names. I'm not going to read all 32 verses, but follow me. Verse 1. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brethren, the priest, and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and hung its doors. They built as far as the tower of, of the hundred and consecrated it, then as far as the tower of Hananel. Next to Eliashib, the men of Jericho built, and next to them, Zechur, the son of Imri, built. Also the son of Hassanah. Built the fish gate. They laid its beams and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. And next to them, Meramoth, the son of Urijah, the son of Kaz, made repairs. Next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, the son of Meshizabel, made repairs. Next to them, Zadok, the son of Bana, made repairs. Next to them, the Tekoites made repairs. But their nobles did not put their shoulders to the work for their Lord. Moreover, Jehoiada the son of Peshia, and Meshulam the son of Besoda, Besodadiah, uh, repaired the old gate. They laid its beams and hung its doors with its bolts and bars. By the way, I practiced all of these names. This is not easy. <laughs> and next to them, Melatiah the Gibeonite and Jadon the Mironathite. The men of Gibeon and Mizpah repaired the residence of the governor of the region beyond the river. Next to him, Uziel, the son of Harhai, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs. Also next to him, Hananiah, and one of, the per- one of the perfumers made repairs. And they fortified Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. And that's how the story goes all the way for 32 verses, one name after another, one people group after another, all of them involved in the building of this wall, if we're going to climb this Mount Everest, if we're going to change this world, if we're going to be difference makers, we've got to learn some lessons that come out of this chapter. First of all, this list that's in these 32 verses represents diversity. You don't have time, and I don't have time to read all those verses, but I hope you'll read them for yourself. Involved in this rebuilding project are rulers, sometimes over entire areas, sometimes over part of areas. There are rulers, and there are priests that are involved. There are both men and women that are involved in this task. Will you look at verse 12? And next to him was Shalom. The son of Halosheth, leader of half the district of Jerusalem, he and his daughters made repairs. There are craftsmen and there are common laborers. We read about them a few moments ago, the craftsmen, the goldsmiths in verse 8, and the perfumers in verse 8. There are people that live outside the city that have to travel a distance to get there. You see them in verse 2, Jericho, or down in verse 7, Gibeon and Mizpah. Or the Tekoites. They all have to travel to get there. But there are others that work right close to their houses. They work right up next to their house. You notice verse 10? Next to them, Jediah, the son of Harumath, made repairs in front of his house. Several other times it says that they were working right next to their house. So some traveled from distances to get there. Some are right there at home, right close to their house. There are married people in this list. There are even two single men listed in this. What are you telling me, preacher? I'm telling you that the rebuilding of this wall took diversity. It took everybody, people from all kinds of backgrounds and people from all kinds of uh, of uh, of opportunity, all kinds of laborers, all kinds of skills. It took all kinds of people. There was diversity. There was men and there was women. There were people who were willing to put their hand to the task and work. There was diversity. Do you realize that the church, the work of the church, of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth and caring for people and reaching out to those that are broken can't be done by a select few There has to be a diversity of us, men and women, married and singles, black and white, those from different places that have to travel and some that live right here next to us. All of us have to get involved in this task. There has to be a diversity. We're not paying a staff to do it for us. You have a staff like Nehemiah to help you to get it done. This list represents diversity. This list list represents availability. There are 38 individuals who are specifically named in these 32 verses. There are 42 groups of people that are working together. And there are probably subgroups. You can imagine you've got some out here that are gathering the brick and the rocks and they're bringing it. And these here are taking the bricks and the rocks and handing it to the people that are on the wall. And you've got somebody over here who's mixing the mortar or whatever they were using in order to put the wall back in place. They all made themselves available. By the way, listen to me. They didn't ask to do only what they could do. Well, I don't have that ability. I don't have that skill. That's not who I am. I doubt the daughters that were mentioned here were skilled at bricklaying and rocklaying. The perfumers certainly weren't. The goldsmiths certainly weren't. The Levites, the priests, they certainly weren't. But all of them were willing to do whatever was needed to be done in order to get the task done They were available. Here, Lord, I am available. Use me. There's unity here. Fifteen times it uses the phrase next to, and 16 times it uses the phrase after him. Notice it, if you will. Verse 2, next to Elisha, the men of Jericho built, and next to them. Verse 4, and next to them. In the middle of the verse, next to them. At the end of the verse, next to them. Verse 5, next to them. And then the wording changes a little bit when you get to verse 16, after him, Nehemiah, verse 17, after him, the Levites, verse 18, after him, they were working together in unity. They understood the great purpose. They understood the task that was before them. They understood this was bigger than themselves. And they didn't argue amongst themselves weren't fighting with each other. They saw the cause. They understood the calling, and they got to the task. This list represents intensity. There are several here who did more than their part. Notice, if you will, verse 11. Melchizedek, the son of Haram, and Hashab, the son of Pehath-Moab, rebuilt, here it is, another section In verse 19, in the middle of the verse, it says they built another section. Another group in verse 21 built another section. In verse 24, another group built another section. In verse 27, another section. In verse 30, they built another section. In other words, they had a responsibility, and when they got it done, they didn't quit. They just kept moving to the next part of the wall, and they just kept building and kept building and kept building. And there's one particular in verse 20. Verse 20. After him, Baruch, the son of Zebai, carefully, see the word, carefully repaired. It's a strong Hebrew word that means to burn or to blaze or to glow. It can mean with anger, but here it means with zeal. I mean, he's up early in the morning and to bed late at night. He's working all through the day. He didn't want to take all the breaks, he wants to get this job done. There's unity, there's intensity. There's priority. This list represents priority. Where do they start and where do they end? Verse one, they start with building the sheep gate. And where do they end? At the sheep gate. Do you know what the sheep gate is? That's the gate where they brought the sacrifices through to go to the temple that were going to be used in the worship of God. And they started with the priority of God. If I could just get the people of God to. Give, make God their priority in life, it would change everything. And then there was tenacity. There was tenacity. If you look at chapter 4, you'll notice that this wasn't an easy process because there's always people that resist. Can I just get it through our skulls, mine included? Get it through our skulls. If we're doing the work of God and we're following God and we're putting our hand to the plow and we're doing what God called us to do, there will always be people to oppose us. It will always be the case. There was Sanballat and Tobiah kept stirring up trouble listen to verse 17 of chapter 4 those who built on the wall and those who carried burdens loaded themselves so that with one hand they worked at construction and with the other hand they held a weapon they were building and they were battling they were building and they were battling and that's how it goes through the entire process Sanballat and Tobiah keep trying to stop the progress. They keep trying to keep people from being involved. They try to keep the walls from being built. But I want you to notice chapter 6, verse 15. I want you to notice the amazing things that happen when people work together. When they work with one heart and with one mind. Chapter 6, verse 15. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of Elol in 52 days. Wow. This enormous task, this Mount Everest that seemed impossible, this task that lay for 95 years. Do you get the number? The walls lay there for 95 years in 52 days. They had rebuilt those walls. They had plugged up the holes. They had rebuilt the gates, rehung the gates, made sure that they had locks on the gates, the bars and the locks mentioned over and over, the bars and the locks. They had it all done 52 days. How do you do that? When everybody sees the need and everybody says, I'm going to do my part. If we're going to be difference makers, we're not calling you to be a lone ranger. We're calling you to join a team and say together we will work with one heart and one mind, and we will see God use us, and we will turn back the enemy that wants to stop us, but we will make a difference. And we will change this world. you got to get off your haunches and get in the battle, and get in the work, and get in what we're doing. It's time to stop saying, well, I'm going to leave that for somebody else. It's time for us to do what we can do, and then do some more as well. I'm reminded of what D.L. Moody said. The great evangelist said, a great many people have a false concept of the church. They've got the idea that the church is a place to rest in. To get into a nicely cushioned pew and contribute to the charities. Thus, they listen to the minister. They do their share to keep the church out of bankruptcy, but that's all they want. The idea of work for them, actually work in the church, never enters their mind. Listen, folks caring for broken people hurts, it's work. It takes time and effort. You can't be running all over the countryside all the time. If you're going to serve Jesus Christ, you've got to stop sometimes and say, God, this is my task. I'm going to do it with all of my being, all of the energy that I have. I will give myself to breaking, helping broken people by being a difference maker. See, how do I respond to this, Pastor? You're preaching pretty hard this morning. Yeah, I know, I'm, tr- I'm trying to get this one out of the way. This is the first Sunday we've been reunited as one church. Those folks across the way needed this. And I'm kidding to those of you 60 or 80 people that have been meeting over there. I'm having fun with you. How do we respond? Number one, you've got to join the team you got to join the team. you got to quit hanging out on the fringes. you got to quit saying, well, I enjoy coming to this church, but I don't want to be a member of this church. I, I want to see what all you're doing, and I want to sit in the pews, and I want to cheer the rest of you on, but I don't want to get in and be a part of the team. you got to join the team. you got to go to work. You gotta to go to work. You gotta recognize that it's not about sitting in a pew every Sunday morning. This is a time of discipleship. This is a time of Bible study. This is a time of learning the Word. This is a time of motivation. This is a time of challenge. But we leave here to do the work of ministering to broken people and we go to work. You can, number three, you gotta do your part. I can't do your part, and you can't do my part, but each of us has a part to play, and we got to do our part, and we got to stay committed. That's number four. got to stay committed. we got to stay committed. There's so many people that are in a little while and out a little while and in a little while and out a little while and in a little while and out a little while. They stump their toe, and they don't show up. Why is it that it takes the whole family to stay home with one sick child? Gotta stay committed. Number, number six, you gotta finish the job. You just keep working until the job's finished. You remember what Paul said? I've kept the faith. I finished the race. I finished the race. I fought the fight, all of the past tense. I just kept on, kept on, kept on, kept on. Until he lost his life as a martyr for the cause of Jesus Christ. Dear friends. I come in this opening message of this series to tell you there is a great cause. There is a task that seems monumental. When the staff and I stop and we look at it and we see the brokenness around us, sometimes we don't know where to turn first. And for the most part, the last 12 months, we've had no one to go with us. It's time to say, We're going to get to work. There's the work of God and the work of the church and the work of the gospel. It's time to get to work. It's time to get off our seats and get in the game. It's time to stop being a spectator and watching and listening but doing nothing. It's time to say, I'm going to be a participant in this great work of the Almighty God. And may I suggest to you, you don't have to do enormous things to do a great work. There's a story about a pediatrician named David Sakira, And he shared this story about a little girl that was dying. He said that one Sunday, his wife prepared the Sunday school lesson and it was about being useful. She taught the children about how God wants to use them and how he wants their lives to be useful to him He said that the kids quietly listened to his wife as she was teaching, and as the lesson ended, there was a moment of silence, and a little girl named Sarah spoke up. So his wife said, what can I do? The little girl said, I should say, what what can I do? I don't know how to do anything useful. Sarah said, what can I do? I don't know how to do anything useful. His wife, he said, wasn't anticipating that kind of response. She looked over, and there was a vase, or for some of you, a vase, sitting on the window seal. And she said, Sarah, you can bring in a flower and put it in the vase. That would be a useful thing. And the little girl, Sarah said, well, that's not very important. She said, it is if you're helping somebody. Sure enough, the next Sunday, Dr. Shakira said, Sarah brought a dandelion and placed it in the vase. In fact, he goes on to say that every week, Without any reminders or without any help from anybody else, she made sure that that vase had a dandelion, a bright yellow flower in it every single Sunday. Dr. Shakira's wife told the preacher about this little girl for several weeks, what she had done, and he decided to use her in an illustration. So he brought the vase upstairs, the vase upstairs, and put it up next to his pulpit, and he used it as a, as a sermon illustration with that little yellow flower in it, and everybody was touched. By the service of this little girl bringing that flower every Sunday. The same week that he gave that message, Dr. Shakira got a call from Sarah's parents. They were worried that Sarah was not doing well. She had less energy. She didn't have an appetite. Obviously, he offered them reassurances, but they had her to come in. and He did all this battery of tests, all the examinations, and he says that when the paperwork came back, it was sitting in his lap, and he was sitting numbly in his office. He said the, tragic, the, the results were tragic. She had a quick-moving, fatal disease. On his way home, he stopped by the house of this family that he knew from his church and who he treated the daughter as a patient, he sat down at the table with the parents and said, Sarah's genetics and this disease are going to attack her small body, and it's going to be a horrible mix. You can imagine the brokenness. You can imagine how difficult it was. After time passed, Sarah became confined to the bed into the visits that people would make to her because she couldn't get out. She lost her smile, he said. She lost most of her weight. And then it came, another phone call. It was Sarah's mother. She asked Dr. Shakira to come to her. He dropped everything, he said, and went immediately to the house. And there was a small bundle, a little girl. She could barely move. After a short examination, he knew Sarah would soon be leaving the world. He urged her parents to spend as much time with her as you can. That was Friday afternoon. On Sunday morning, Dr. Shakira said the sermon was going and the singing was going, but he said it was just empty inside of me. He said he felt enveloped in the sadness of this little girl that was about to die. But at the end of the sermon, the pastor suddenly stopped speaking, and his eyes wide open started looking at the back of the church in utter amazement. And people saw it, and they all began to turn and began to look that way. And in walked the parents of Sarah, and it was Sarah wrapped up in this bundled blanket all around her, and in one hand was a dandelion. She didn't sit in the back row, he said. She slowly walked down to the front of the church where her vase was still perched perched by the pulpit. She put her flower in the vase and a piece of paper beside it, and then she returned to his parents, to her parents. And seeing this obviously touched the whole congregation. And when the service came to an end, they all gathered around the family and gathered around little Sarah, and everybody was offering encouragement. But four days later, Sarah was gone. Dr. uh, Sequeira said that he wasn't expecting it, but at the funeral, the pastor asked if he could see him when the service was over. They met out by the cars, at the cemetery, out by the cars, and in a low voice, the pastor said, Dave, that's Dr. Sequeira, by the way, Dave, I got something you ought to see. He pulled out of his pocket the piece of paper that Sarah had left by the vase and holding it out to him, he said, you'd better keep this. It may help you in your line of work. Dr. Sakara opened that folded piece of paper and in pink crayon, Sarah had written the words, dear God, this vase has been the biggest honor of my life, signed Sarah. Dr. Sequeira said the note helped him to understand that life is an opportunity to serve God by serving people. And as Sarah had put it, he said, that's the biggest honor of all. You want to be a difference maker? We're not asking you to do it alone. We're asking you to join the team. Today in the back, at that circle desk in the back, There's someone there, and you can go say, look, I I volunteer. I want to be a part of the team. I want to help. You tell me what you need. It may not be my specialty, but you tell me what you need, and I'll begin to help. And let us begin to connect people with responsibilities that are desperately needed. We've been more than a year hiding from a virus. While people have been dying and going to hell, 500,000 of them have died. Church, it's time to go to work. It's time to get off the pew and get back in the game. It's time to stop sitting at home unless you have some kind of a health issue that means you to stay away for a little while longer. It's time to put your hand to the plow and go to work. There are people who desperately need the hope that only Jesus can bring them.